0: I have never seen a therapist in my entire life, and I've had a number of pretty traumatic events. And the reason I'd never done that is because that would jeopardize my security clearance, because it's not okay to say that you're not okay to them. That makes you a
1: liability. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Joining us today is Jerry Simpson, a fellow entrepreneur, Member of Mastermind Talks, a community created by our mutual friend and fellow Ordinary Trip star, Jason Gaynard, and a client and massive advocate of Field Trip, and undoubtedly the person who can claim to having the highest security clearance in the US government of anyone on this podcast. Jerry, thank you for joining me today and welcome to Field Tripping.
0: Thanks, Ronan. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: It's, uh, it's really nice to connect in person. You and I have had a decent number of interactions through social media, or the vast void of social media, but this is our first direct <laughs> conversation. So my first question to you, which is actually a bit of a tricky one, is who are you?
0: Oh, who am I? I love that you, that you acknowledge that it's a tricky question because I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, which is how most of the world knows me. Usually that's how I'm expected to answer that question somebody recently pointed out that I don't give life to that answer. And (laughs) mostly because I think it's such an ill way to define me. I think my business successes or failures are such an ill way to define me, but it really is how, how people want to define me. So I'm a very curious person uh, is, is kind of always the first thing that comes to mind. I think my wife would agree. I'm a very curious person. Um, I'm a husband, I'm a father, um, you know, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm this guy who's navigating the world and sees many unfolding layers of it all the time and loves to explore it. I am proud to be an entrepreneur because the vehicle that is entrepreneurship has given me such a beautiful path of discovering new information. It brings me to people like you, people in our MMT community. Um, it's just, I don't, haven't known a better vehicle to both, explore and learn new things that aren't uh, common yet. And also a better vehicle to allow me to dictate how I want the world to unfold to me. Uh, just because when you're, entre- when you're an entrepreneur, you get to make the rules up uh, at least a good bit. You get to control your environment um, and the people around you and you know how you see it should be done. You get to at least give it a shot and see if you can make it work.
1: It's so funny. Cause like half of my questions that I've posed are on exactly some of the touch points that you just hit on, uh, specifically around entrepreneurship. So we're being efficient. <laughs> <laughs> so we're being efficient. We're just getting right to the fucking chase. No, but before we go down that, um, Wanted to expand on that question, which is, thank you for sharing, who are you? And I know it's a tricky question because it's a question we've been posing all the way through the production of the documentary to see how it shifts. And and I'll, I'll share some personal kind of insights, even like talking to Jason, our, our mutual friend, you know, he identifies more as an artist than an entrepreneur. And I actually share that as well. And we can talk about that, but we'll get to it. But can you tell us your story, how you became an entrepreneur, how you came to having the you know high security clearance in the U.S. government and 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 that journey as well because that'll form part of this conversation too.
0: Really, I think I started my entrepreneurship journey unofficially when I was like five. I have probably five unofficial, not you know, filed with the IRS businesses in my youth. Um, <laughs> anything from I used to do this thing where I would stand behind people and I could I would organize coupons in my pocket, my back pocket, and I could see what what they had through the line and immediately present them with all the coupons that were applicable for their groceries and trade it for cash. So I'd say something like, "You know, I've got $10 in coupons for you if you'll give me seven. And they'd kind of sure, why not? And then you make three bucks. And uh, instead of selling lemonade, I just took, I just drew on things and called it art and sold it because I realized that people would buy anything from kids who were trying to be entrepreneurial. (laughs) And it was a lot faster than making lemonade. When I was a teenager, I was really fascinated with the internet my My parents were divorced, and we live very far apart uh, for people that are younger. They won't know that long distance phone calls were extremely expensive, and flights were were a little, were hard to come by for us as well, at least at our economic level. And so, for me to communicate with my dad was email, and that spawned my fascination with the internet and how it works. Instead of going to college pursued creating a website, which was known as mousemalls.com. It was very much like Amazon. My entire reason for building it was not to grow a business, but was just to make portfolio materials so I could get a job. Because I figured <laughs> I didn't have any education. I didn't have any experience. If I could just make something that had like everything everyone needed to see, I could get a job, especially in the internet. They were like, if you can prove you can do it, we'll give you, give you a job. But it, it ended up starting to make money. Then a broker came to me. I didn't know anything about mergers and acquisitions at the time. Um, And a broker came to me and said, we'd like to buy your site. I found out later he was from Amazon. I didn't understand why they, I just was like, why would Amazon want to buy me? They're so, I mean, they were, even then, and this is 1999, they were still like, you know, kind of a big deal. And he, he explained to me, listen, the same way I found you a venture capitalist would find you and want to inject cash into you and make competition for us. And so I'm buying you to stop. Stop doing it. And then just kind of got on a roll of, um, you know, I did that. I took that money and started another business, which automated websites, very basic thing today. But in the early 2000s, you know, if you were a pub and you just wanted to be on the web because it was cool, you could fill out a few things and it would make you a website. Um, And just been on kind of a roll of it since then. And you know really love investing in other people's businesses love all the mechanics of it and i just love the freedom it's given me today the thing that i appreciate appreciate about it the most is the amount of time it allows me to spend with my family because i'm the one who says if i need to travel or if i need to work exhaustive hours and then being able to lend that down to all of my coworkers to say you know you can have a really high quality of life at home and excel at work if you just do it the right way and make up your own reality.
1: Totally. And, and lots of things I want to touch on there, but uh, what are you doing now? And, and what led to uh, like the security clearance with the government?
0: The, in the early 2000s, like in 2000, you know, I, had, <laughs> I had a particular set of skills um, that the intelligence agencies that the US government thought were very useful. Um, I know I'm sounding like the movie, what is the... The Kidnapping Ransom movie, I can't think of what it's called.
1: Well, we'll go with Jason Bourne right now. It sounds very Jason Bourne-esque to me.
0: Yeah. And I would, it was such a fascinating way to both get an education. For me, it was always about, you know, taking my skills and um, also learning at a higher level what was kind of happening with some of the deeper technologies that existed that only the intelligence community, intelligence agencies had access to. Even when I was doing those other dot coms, I was always doing this consulting for the Department of Defense and for our different intelligence agencies, which required a top secret security clearance, sometimes very actively and sometimes very passively. Usually there would be some issue that would pull at my heartstrings and they would say, "You know, hey, we gotta get you involved. And I'd say, no, I'm doing this thing. And they would explain the issue at hand I would say, yeah, I'd like to help with that somehow, some way. Let me see, let me see what we can't figure out. And they would just kind of like draw me in on that level. And so that required a top secret security clearance very early on to this day. Um, I still do consulting with the intelligence agencies and Department of Defense The thing that I'm doing right now is I started a new company called Atlas Up. And Atlas Up, just to not bore your customers too much, it's like, think about like Waze does for roads. Is that for work? And it's meant to take extremely big organizations and give them automated plans so they're more efficient. And my vision for that is that I believe that all of the problems we have stem from, I'm afraid there isn't going to be enough and thus we should fight. And I believe that's because we're inefficient. And I believe if we could get to become more efficient, then our instinct would be to team and tool, which is really what makes us like, that's the, the beginning of humankind is that made us unique, is that we teamed and we tooled. We weren't the strongest animal. We didn't have these crazy jaws and claws, but we teamed up with each other or we teamed up with dogs and we made tools and we still do that. But for the history of humankind, we have always been afraid there's not gonna be enough and waged war and fought on each other. And what I would like, uh, Peter Diamantes has this great illustration of two people come up to an orange tree. They decide that there's not, they can't reach enough of the oranges to feed their separate families. And so realizing that they draw swords and fight and they could build a ladder and they'd have access to all of the bloom, which would be more than enough, but they don't believe, they don't have enough faith in their ability to be efficient. And so they draw a sword. And so that's the thesis behind what I do. And to me, going at the Department of Defense to do that is they have some of the biggest innovations that have happened in human history came from them, Internet being one of them. And to me, I would I would like to see our Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense. I know you're in Canada, but I'm involved with the U.S. I'd like to see the U.S. Department of Defense become the leading branch of the global Department of Defense against existential threat to mother earth and humankind, instead of this epic war machine against other humans. And my, and they're, they're kind of like, okay, sure. I hear, you know, like, whatever. It, you wanna do that by making us, you believe if you make us tremendously more efficient that we will team up with all of our counterparts cause we won't need to fight. And um, I say, look at the evidence. You see like the Navy, you see two organizations in the Navy that would compete, team up. You see the Navy and the Army instead of competing team up. You see our Department of Defense and the UK or the Canadian Department of Defense instead of competing on something team up. And it's only so long before, you know, that becomes us and Russia, us and North Korea, us and Iran saying, do we need to fight about these things? Because they really stem from I'm scared there's not going to be enough and I think we should fight about it. Thanks for letting me say that.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's awesome. I, I love that. I, I mean... There's something inherently very psychedelic about those comments. And so before we dig deep, because I, I love that subject matter and I want to go deeper into it. You know, when when we first connected about this podcast, uh, you kind of expressed concern about coming out and talking about psychedelics in the context of the intelligence agencies, and we'll go into that, but would love to understand you are now a field trip client, or I'm trying to shift that language to member, member client. Tell me about that. Tell me how you found out about Field Trip. If it, if it wasn't other through like posting on social, uh, what led you to Field Trip? Talk about your experience, and and, uh, and you know we'll dig into it from there.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I found out about it through endless peers um, talking about it, mostly on social media, uh, watching a lot of your posts and things like that, following, um, you know, watching you guys go public and following the investor news. There it was just like to see a company. Uh, as a business person, I'm naturally going to be intrigued if I see something go from like zero to public and was 26 months in a category like psychedelics, you know, it's just like these things catch your attention. I had, I was in the Pentagon on September 11th. I was 21. So we're at the 20 year uh, anniversary of September 11th. And I always say like, while this is a day I know that everybody else wants to never forget. It's a day I really... Don't like to ever remember. The 20-year anniversary, they built up so much around it that it was just very triggering for me to watch all of this stuff on the on the media. I was fighting these bouts of anxiety, all in the form of hypochondria. Like I'd wake up and have a bump on my leg that's like a mosquito bite. And but I diagnosed myself with six deadly diseases by sunrise through, you know, WebMD and Everything it's just like really debilitating anxiety. I was thinking, you know, I've never, I have never seen a therapist in my entire life, and I've had a number of pretty traumatic events. And the reason I'd never done that is because that would jeopardize my security clearance. Because it's not okay to say that you're not okay to them. That makes you a liability. It's ludicrous because lying (laughs) is probably creates more of a liability. But everybody knows it's sort of unspoken. If you fill out on the form that you had to see a therapist for any reason that had to do with your mind, that could jeopardize your clearance. And for me, that was never like a big financial thing, but it would jeopardize meaningful work that I was doing. Um, and so I avoided it. My, my, my mother is a therapist. My stepfather is, a, is a, has a PhD in psychology. I would go to the ends of the earth to get my employees help in this category, but never sought it myself. And, um, one night I was just seeing her, I, I was just like, I'm at my wits end. I I could see from all the things I was reading, what an efficient tool this could be, particularly for anxiety and said, screw it. I'm going to go on the website and open up the chat box and see where it goes. And so that was my entire foray
1: into coming to field trip. Cool. And had you ever experimented with psychedelics prior to that point? Uh,
0: yeah, I'll be, I'll be, um, careful with my language, but I have, uh, used other plant medicine in a legal setting before. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: And, and what were those experiences helpful? Like, did you find them like, were you predisposed to like looking at field trip and saying like, okay, legal ketamine assisted therapy based on past life experiences, I can see the, the potential for this.
0: So I got online with a, I got on to a therapist right before I went to field trip on zoom was the first therapist I'd ever talked to. And I felt really frustrated because well, he had said something like, you know, all the things that you're worried about, like your hypochondria, all the diseases that you're worried you're going to get, they could happen. I'm not going to tell you they couldn't happen, but you know, they're no more likely to happen than if a plane was to crash into a building you were in. Shit, And I said, well, a plane did crash into a building I was in once. And I was sitting in that building thinking, I really hope a plane doesn't crash into this building because I'd seen it happen in New York. And so I was sitting in the Pentagon thinking, please don't let a plane crash into this building. Please don't let a plane crash into this building. And then bam. And then he said, well, that was an unfortunate example. <laughs> and maybe there's something to that. You know, Maybe you, you're worried that your worries will make it come true. And I, I, I said, listen, I can tell that your tool is logic. Logic is my expertise. It is my tool of choice. I am here because I it has failed me. I am, I'm hoping you have another tool in the toolbox than logic. And so I kind of got off the phone and thought whether this is my per, and this is definitely not to poo poo traditional therapist. Really, this just wasn't going to be a match for his style. His tools weren't. I don't think going to be a match for me. But thinking okay. I wonder how many more of them are going to use, like, don't have another tool. I need something different than logic. I've, I've exhausted that one in my, in my own head already. I had thought back to my other plant medicine experience and I had thought how healing it was for me. And I had really not known something to be so efficient in such a short amount of time. And so I, that was really like combining this. Uh, I just don't know if this traditional therapy is going to work for me. And I have this other data point that does predispose me to think that psychedelic assisted therapy, that the combination might be really useful.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, you don't have to answer this question if, if you don't feel comfortable doing so. Uh, but like, what was it like being in the Pentagon when that happened? I'm like, Can you, can you describe what happened? If you don't want to talk about it, cause like it's too sensitive
0: not at all. No, thank you. And thank you for offering me the sensitivity on it. it I, the thing I, I remember is that it was an explosion of all my senses because immediately it happened. I felt myself get thrown, like physically thrown. I could smell smoke very quickly. I could smell gas and smoke and I, I could see all the lights went out because the light shattered I could feel you know, glass fall. I mean, it just seemed like every sense I had was being overwhelmed. And I definitely had a moment where I thought, oh, this is a dream because it's kind of going like a dream goes. It becomes super unrealistic all of a sudden and I was actively thinking it was gonna happen. And like, how, how could you be in the Pentagon, the headquarters of the, United, the might of the United States military and be attacked? And, and the other really interesting thing was there were all these generals in the room who were basically from the Vietnam War era. Um, you know, They had made their rank based on Vietnam uh, times. And I just thought like they have been in the scariest places in the world to me. And they look scared right now. They look legitimately terrified. And I, and I recognized later that that's, this is a the place they did not expect. It blew their assumptions up. They didn't expect to be attacked here either. Their terror like amplified my terror. And so I remember being, what's the word, just disoriented, trying to find my way out, getting outside of the building and just seeing it and the magnitude of the reality of it landing on me, um, not knowing who was there that I, that I knew or cared about. Being worried about how I'm going to get out of there because I thought, well, they used two planes on the World Trade Center, and it must take twenty. Just quick math to me was it was going to take twenty-five to take out the Pentagon. It's it's five sides, five rings deep. Just kind of looked at and thought it's going to take twenty-five planes to take this out. One took out one twenty-fifth of the building. There must be more coming, and thinking I don't want to be in this parking lot uh, full of people. And I just went on foot. I remember I yelled at at. the person who was in charge, uh, like my, the kind of our contract, she said, let's get in the car. I said, get away from me using some foul language. And, uh, <laughs> and I just walked uh, as far away as I could on foot uh, until I got away from there. And then I had, I had years where I would sit in my office. I had an office in Roslin, which is just very close to the Pentagon. And there was like a flight pattern that would come over the building. And just as soon as one cleared and you knew that it wasn't going to hit, there was another one in line. And I was just paralyzed by it. I would sit and stare and go, this one's going to come right into my office. And then it would go up and over and I go, there's another one. And I had to get out of there and I would have these dreams that I was on top of the building and a plane hit it. And I was riding the wave, like riding the top of the building to the ground. And, but I never sought any professional attention somewhat of a little bit of probably the combination of the ego of a 21, 22 year old. And this like, Oh, no way that will, that will be a stigma uh, on my record that would prevent me from doing work that I care a lot about.
1: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That was just like absolutely mind blowing. I've, I've never spoken to anyone who had firsthand experience with that and man, I, <laughs> I I don't even know how to like to describe it or possibly imagine it, but like you, even just the way you communicated it, it, it resonates and, and hits deep. So so thank you for sharing that. Um, your your therapist, your your first failed attempt with a therapist, said you know you're worried that maybe if you worry about it, it'll come through come true. I'm curious to know what came up during your sessions with ketamine during field trip, and have they helped with the the hypochondria or uh, whatever else may. Have been or is still going on in your life?
0: Yeah, so uh, you know what would, what I'd love to do is kind of walk people who haven't been to field trip uh, just kind of through what it's like to come in as a customer. You know, I didn't let anybody know I knew you, so I was coming in as Joe Schmo customer. Um, and the first thing they have you do is meet with a psychiatrist, which it was eye opening for me. Just the questions that were asked that they asked opened a lot of For me, like they said, have you ever spent an inordinate amount of time in a hospital or around doctors, particularly as a child, you know, as it relates to my hypochondria? And I thought, I don't know why I never thought of this before. But yes, my mother had breast cancer when I was 12. um, And shortly thereafter, I um, I was in the hospital a lot around a virus that I had that they didn't know what it was or what was going on with it. It was a lot to take in around that age and immediately kind of thought, yeah, that seems like maybe a likely source of where this comes from. And as I discussed a few other things, uh, you know, after that, then they pass you on to a therapist. who does some preparation calls with you, gets you ready for um, the psychedelic assisted the ketamine assisted therapy. And one thing that she had said to me, which was so helpful was. I was talking about a number of issues and I was kind of beating myself up for why I had not identified them sooner. And she said, stop, your coping skills helped you survive. And they got you here right on time, right at the place that you need to be right here where you have the space and like everything you need in your life to dig through this and properly process some things so take a moment instead to thank your coping skills for keeping you alive up to this point to now go back and process and i just felt like i really needed to hear that because i was like i wasted all this time i could have figured this out years ago and she said now we're gonna do it and so when i went in for the ketamine assisted therapy I didn't know a lot of what to expect. I knew people that um, recreationally abused ketamine when I was a kid. It didn't like look appealing to me. They kept, they would talk about the K-hole or, and it just, it never looked great. It wasn't the most reputable people I know doing it. And the experience itself just didn't look that great. So I was, I had kind of a bad stigma in my mind. I needed to do a mountain of research around it before You know, I would go in there. I was a little shocked. Oh, this, I can't believe this is legal. And that's amazing. And also logistically, it's phenomenal because of just the amount of time it takes. Like I had figured out I could drop my kids off at school, go get therapy and not be driving machinery by the afternoon, but I could be a dad by the time they got home. And it just logistically seemed kind of magical to me. So I went in, they gave me shot in the arm. I immediately fell right through the back of my chair. Not, not literally for the audience, but that's the way it felt like uh, the Alice in Wonderland, uh, you know, falling down the rabbit hole sensation. I was expecting there to be more like describable things and nothing about it felt describable to me at all. It just felt like folds of planes being lapped over onto themselves but it felt incredible. And the thing I told my wife afterwards was, there was, there was well, I'll say there was, there was one known describable thing that was so useful to me. And it was, the, it was words that I heard or felt or something. And it was similar to, um, in business we say, it's not personal, it's business, which I, I hate it when people say that. But this was, it's not personal, it's existence. And I felt this sense of like things happen in the world. And, and, and I felt like I was so immaterial. Like I felt like I mattered as much as a coronavirus. <laughs> you know, like I was such this tiny little thing. And it, there's just like incidental damage that happens. I had this vision of um a lawn being mowed and a lawnmower. Like mowing down grass, and there's a corner, and there's it can't really get into the corner, and so some of the grasses escape the carnage of the lawnmower, and some of them don't. But the ones that do, you know, they regrow. And what that, what I, the way that that occurred to me was that all of the things that happen to us as humans that we perceive as traumatic, even if we think they're personal, they're not. They're somebody else meeting a need. They are. Even if somebody said they were personal, they're not really about us. And to um, disconnect that it's personal, also disconnect shame. Like, how can you have shame if it isn't even about you? How could you own it as shame if it's not even about you? You know, one of the things that I try to explain to people about psychedelics is you get a lot of things that you have heard or been told or know intellectually. But that medicine helps you know it. I actually know it instead of think it. And so the way that it impressed that feeling on me was incredibly healing and attached. It wasn't like I worked on one thing. It felt like it was such a blanket tool for so many things that I could always carry with me. Things that hadn't happened yet. Uh, things that would happen in the future to remind myself it's the world operating. And I told my wife, I said, I felt like I didn't matter at all. And I could see this look on her face like, oh, that doesn't, that sounds like it would make you suicidal or something. And I said, and it was awesome. <laughs> it was amazing to not matter. Not mattering takes a lot of pressure off to just not, you know, to be insignificant to the universe takes a lot of pressure off.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I mean, uh, that hits me on, on, on so many levels. You know, one of the, recently I came up with, if there's a single lesson that I can impress on my kids, because I got a six year old and a three year old boy, it's that whatever anybody else does only tells you one thing, something about them. Not about you. And it's a lesson I struggle with, you know, all the time, right? Like the, the shame and all that kind of stuff, you carry it. But like if you can learn that all that you're getting from another person is something about them and not about you, it it's super powerful. And, and it's again, it's easy to conceptualize it, but to embody it and hold it in that indescribable way where it just makes more sense than it did purely logically. Um, there, there there's no more powerful lesson than that. And and similarly, you know, the the comment about not existing to the universe, it's like i I kind of I think philosophically, you know I'm in a similar place where it's like you kind of have to hold both both concepts of you don't matter at all and you matter entirely at the same time, and they can coexist without creating pressure because you're right if If you take that, you don't matter at all to far down one direction. it can lead you to um dangerous tendencies, but if you can hold it in balance, like it, it's super powerful.
0: I think that really touches on the equality of it. Like you don't matter more and like everybody's running around this earth trying to be significant or extraordinary. Well, to be extraordinary is to, is to be more than ordinary, which is to beat everybody else, which means it means whatever you're aspiring to have make you happy is not going to be available for most people because there's no other way for you to be extraordinary without a whole bunch of other people being uh, ordinary and then thus not achieving this and thus not having the happiness. And I think inherently we know that doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. And one of the analogies that I used coming out of that experience, actually probably from my second experience to field trip, was I was explaining to somebody, I said, it's like you take your hands and it's like if your pointer finger suddenly got its own identity. And it was like, I'm the pointer finger. I'm the best finger on team right hand and I'm team right hand and team right hand is amazing. We're the best. And then team right hand gets a look at left hand and is like, uh uh-oh, that team left hand, it looks like competition. It looks, you know, almost as good as me. And I'm gonna be team, uh, uh, individual pointer finger leading team right hand and I'm gonna attack left hand and take it out. And it feels great for a second. And then it starts to feel sick over time, slowly and slowly. It doesn't understand why it achieved what it thought it needed to achieve. Well, the body suddenly doesn't have a left hand. Team right hand is not only doing all of the work, it's missing a hand, it's part of the body. And so to me, it was like, I don't matter more. And that felt amazing. And these concepts of equality that we have in humanity is like, It's a value of mine to say that I don't believe I'm better than anybody else. But hundreds of times a day, people signal to me that I do matter more because I'm male, because I'm white, because I've accumulated some wealth. Because you're a CEO. Yeah, because I'm CEO. There's this constant signaling you are more important and we will cater to you. And I remember there's this woman every day I drive down. And I live in Los Angeles. I drive down the hills to take my kids to school. And there's this woman that I see who's walking up the hills. And I presume, based on a number of other data points, that she's going to work in somebody's house. I know she does it every day. She even does it on the weekends. And I can see economically there's a difference between us. But I could feel for the first time... We may have been born right next to each other in the hospital. We came into this world just as two humans with like, what is this life? What is it going to be? And I felt like we were same in a way that was so impressed upon me that all of my value of I'm equal never did. It's just a different reckoning of what equality could be, and it felt so good because then I felt like we belonged to each other. That sense of belonging. Is hard to describe. People say it's lonely at the top, or, or whatnot. But like when you're trying to edge yourself into a category that outranks everybody else, you're not going to belong. I think as humans, as animals, as you know beings of the universe, belonging is something that we so crave and want to have and want to hold. And that just felt even more healing.
1: Hundred percent. I mean, coming out of uh, experience in Costa Rica with. Um... Uh, with San Pedro, you know, one of the themes that came up, particularly for Sanjay, uh, Sanjay who has been on the podcast and, and is the founder of the Nikan Foundation was the importance of connectedness, you know, um, and so he shifted the whole focus of the Nikan Foundation from being about research to being about connectedness, because that's what matters way more. Um and one of the themes, actually, that came up for me in Amsterdam recently, when I, I you know, we were shooting the documentary there, was, and and I think this may resonate with you, but let me know how it lands. Throughout my life, I've taken on the responsibility of other people's emotions, right? And I carry that burden, and I, you can call it overcaring. You can call it overly empathetic. You know, the words uh, empathy as a substitute for experience came up um, for me. But one of the things that came out of the therapy session afterwards was there's a part of me that takes on that responsibility and is tired of taking on that responsibility. Um, And, and I resent it when people put more responsibility on me. And in hearing you talk about like being exceptional, it's like, there's a burden that goes with that. And it's like, if you are born with great skills and people expect you to utilize them, that's like a burden. And it's kind of like, I don't, I don't, necessarily want to take on other people's burden or expectations of me just because I'm particularly good at whatever, climbing mountains, running, you know, being a lawyer. Let me just be me. Don't, don't put that on me. and can create a breed, a whole bunch of resentment. And and I think about this in the conversation of like being an entrepreneur as well, which is like, yeah, you become good at it. And like, there's all these expectations, especially because we glorify entrepreneurship these days in so many ways and there are things to i think really laud entrepreneurship about but one of the things i've really come to it's like it's not about being an entrepreneur it's being about resourceful being self-reliant being innovative these are the things we should laud being an entrepreneur is just a vehicle for it or it's just like a a proxy for it but it has nothing like the value of the real skills are on the other side so i don't know how, how does any of that sit with you
0: Yeah. Thank you for, for saying that. Let me, I can, I have a very clear way that it sits with me. The something that occurred to me was that my relationship with love or being loved is that I'm useful to other people and that it's difficult for me to imagine that anybody loves me outside of my usefulness, not because anybody's doing something wrong, but I just can't help to say like, it's a, I'm very useful to other people. That's a little bit part of being resourceful and innovative. Yeah. And that's how I, when I need love, that's my go-to tool. And I was thinking about it like, okay, uh, to find my own self value inside is just a weak muscle because I got, uh, it's like a, a crutch. Um, The easy thing for me was to be useful to other people. When you start a business, you solve a problem for customers. So I solved a problem for people and added value to them and they loved me. And then it made money and so I needed to grow it. So I employed people and provided a life for them and they loved me. And then I had a family and it provided a life for them and they loved me. And I used the excess to be philanthropic and give to my community and they loved me. And I learned things and I shared them with the world and they loved me. And that's how I got good at filling myself up with love, which is great until it's exhaustive. Just like you said, and that I realize what happens if you lose? like, what happens if you stop being good at business? Where will you get love from? And do you understand how to receive it? Do you understand how to exchange it? And just do you understand that you have value without contributing to other people. So yeah, I, I identify within a very similar, slightly of a twist of a way.
1: That's, that's totally it, right? Like it, it's, it, it's what Erwin, uh, the teacher I work with talks about is like, what's he call, what he calls chauvinism, which is like the distortion of the masculine and feminine, feminine. And it's like, men become performance objects, we derive worth, Or our self-worth from doing and women become sex objects, which is and you see it like just hop on social media and you'll see any picture that a woman posts, like the comments are, oh my God, you're so gorgeous, oh, so beautiful, and all that kind of stuff. Like it, it just happens. And you see it in men being like, I'm I'm the same way. It's like, how do I have worth if I'm not doing something? How do I like my sense of identity becomes tied to success or wealth or whatever it is? And without that, it's like you literally become nothing. It becomes existential. I'm curious to know. I mean, you said it so very elegantly and eloquently that it sounds like you've really kind of embodied that, but where are you on this journey? Cause I've been working on this shit for like 20 years now and I'm still like, still a daily struggle to find self-worth that's not attached to performance.
0: No, it's still very much a struggle. Um, I'll say one thing is one thing that's helped me in this journey is starting with myself. I know that, a lot of people in general have a, they do some negative self-talk. And there was a time when that was really useful fuel for me and it motivated me. And I also deployed coping skills to deal with, you know, when things got hard that were less than healthy. And I had to have a conversation with myself recently where I was careful with the wording and I didn't say I'm sorry, or I apologize because it's shame. Attached to it. I just said, I acknowledge that you have not been able to count on me to be a voice of support in your head when things go wrong. And I commit to you that if you every single thing up, every single thing up, if everything you're worried, you do it all wrong, and it all goes wrong to the max, and everybody leaves you, you can count on me to be support in your head. You don't have to worry about me. And you being in a room alone and me tearing you down, just a conversation with myself. And it changed so much for me to know that really the thing we, we fear the most is the brutality of our self-talk. To just know like, okay, I, I had to say it to myself again and again and again, that I'm going to be there for you if you mess it all up. Um, And I hear people say like, I'd never forgive myself if blah happened. That's like a trigger to remind myself, like, don't say that you will forgive yourself for anything because that just, that's sort of the place of the start for me to develop that relationship of understanding my self-worth and that I don't deserve, even if I, I don't deserve more love because I'm super useful. I don't deserve less if I mess things up, but it still feels very like immature in the long and the long journey
1: of it all. Uh, honestly, that, that was beautiful. Like, you know, those words, like they, they totally touched me. Uh, and I think I'm going to have to co-opt um, that, that, that talking to yourself strategy. Cause I certainly can, could use a, a lot of that myself some days. So thank you for sharing that. I, I really mean it's that. It's like tonight. a vow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like that's the most important, like the, the one person you're going to be with for the rest of your life is yourself. Um, <laughs> that is the only certainty you can say about that. And so it's like, yeah, it's. Probably a good idea to invest in that relationship, even though God, it seems so abstract sometimes, right? Or like mm-hmm. so weird to talk to yourself that way. Like you're like, am I it does. Nice fucking mind? But but you see our kids doing it too, and
0: then it, you realize like it starts so early, and I'm trying to teach the same thing to my kids, and sometimes I just got to remember what is it that yesterday I'm driving down the street, got my kids in the car, I'm starting to go down the the road to go to school. Su- suddenly a bunch of head trash starts coming in, and and I had awareness of it. So I was like, wow, that's great. You were like very aware of it very quickly. Okay, what are the tools that we have to solve it? And I thought, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, what, are the, I, what are the tools that are lost on me all of a sudden? And it took me a little bit and I realized like, okay, what are the things just focusing on love? Like what's easy to love? You, it's difficult to have this head trash if you just focus on what's easy to love. Music and focusing on sound. Gratitude, it's difficult to be like, usually fear is what causes us to talk shit to ourselves. And so if I could focus on gratitude, I won't be afraid at the same time. And then I could hear my wife say, just dance. And I put on a song that makes me dance. When you dance, you're just in like a different form of presence. And so for me, just to like rephrase that, it, it was quick awareness and then going into the tools that get me out of my head. Yeah. Okay, well, when I'm dancing, I'm not in my head. When I hear this song, it just takes what's in my head away and makes me move. And so, you know, some of the work that I've done, particularly in this department has really helped me get fast at snapping
1: out of it. That's awesome. What is the song, if I may ask?
0: <laughs> this song was "Controller" by Drake. I don't <laughs> okay. know. I don't know. There's not even like the words to it or anything like that. It's just... It's just a vibe, and uh, it takes me right into like a like really embody the song, and stop thinking about all the stuff I'm afraid of.
1: Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, thank you for sharing all that.
0: You're you're from Toronto, right? So I'm in good company, saying Drake. He, yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> he, he, he is. Uh, he, he is the bastion here. You know, we we've got a lot of big celebrities coming out of Canada: Bieber, Drake, uh, Celine yes. Dion. You know, we, we got it covered. I love everything that you're sharing. I mean, it 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 demonstrates to me like a, a incredibly sophisticated and involved sense of self-awareness. Um, for someone who's been on this journey, I guess, in a formal capacity with a therapist or, you know, psychedelic assisted therapies um fairly recently, you know, it it it's, it's creating a lot of uh, a lot of self-awareness in you, which is amazing to see and it, it's constructive for me as well. You know, you, you talked about, and, and I wrote it down because the word is interesting, that you, you did work for intelligence agencies. And what struck me is the hypocrisy or the paradox associated with intelligence agencies, which are devoid completely devoid of emotional awareness, right? Like if mm-hmm. you can't be self-aware in that respect, like how can mm-hmm. how can you have full kind of intelligence if you're only defined by that logic reason also that part of you that goes negative self-talk, you know, you can start to understand um, why maybe it's not just about scarcity or, I mean, maybe scarcity was is like the precipitating thing that leads to those fights between the left hand and the right hand and all that kind of stuff, but the self-perpetuating nature of if it's all logic and emotion re- driven as opposed to integrating some degree of emotionality, spirituality, and personal awareness it's just it's going to go further and further off the rails in a particular direction. And, um, and you said, I think, uh, as as we prepared for this, that uh, you've never been more fit for service as you are right now. And I'm guessing it's premised on on the work you've been doing. Uh, I'm just I don't know where I'm going with this question, but like, how do you how do you, how do you think we start this conversation in the Department of Defense in the Pentagon to say like? hey guys, and let's be honest, it's mostly guys, uh, it's time to step up and 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 shape up in a, in a really more balanced way. How, how, how do we do that? What can we do? What can you do to to sort of enable this?
0: It's honestly one of the biggest reasons that I want to be outspoken about it. One, um, I will just say to your comment about it, it's mostly guys. In the last four years, there have been a lot of women, and I'm not just giving one credit to one administration, is, is that four years spans both, but there have been a lot of um uh, women that have risen to really high ranks in the military. I think that's very exciting for us. Absolutely. as Absolutely. Uh, but it is new uh, ish that those highest levels are, are being. And to me, um, there's always been this negative. Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons that women haven't got promotions uh, who deserved it was there's this negative stereotype from men that women are too emotional. And so I don't know if, they're promising not to be as emotional or if the men who came before them are understanding the value, including emotion, energy and motion into the entire equation. Um, but that's just as as an aside to me, it's, there's a lot of talk in the psychedelic community about veterans for PTSD. There's some excitement inside of, you know, people that are into defense around that, uh, you're seeing some really amazing people uh, discuss it. And there seems to be support a little bit on both aisles to to progress things for our veterans. And I think that's amazing and it's awesome. And I also just personally think it's such a great needle point to get the conversation going and to start to extrapolate the data that we have. But I know that, I mean, regular therapy has been around forever and been legal for everybody for a long time and not available to the people inside the Pentagon really running the show, like the whole show, not the US show, not like part of it. Like the people in the Pentagon have gargantuan influence over humanity. It's one building. And that to me was why this plane comes down and why did it matter to Al-Qaeda to take to put a plane in this building is... It's a serious set signal. We've been at war for 20 years. We just ended it, but we just did 20 years of war. You tend to get promoted by heroic acts of war. PTSD comes from traumatic events. And if you put those things together, what you have is the people at the highest ranks of the Pentagon, some portion of getting to that rank was having experienced a myriad of traumatic events uh, through war that are still sitting with them and they're running the show and they're not able to get what is being very broadly accepted as the absolute best tools to upgrade their psychology and to upgrade their hardware too. And I'll talk about that in a minute, not just you know, the mind. And I was thinking about it like a handful of years ago, marijuana was criminal, still federally criminal which is ridiculous, and I'll get to that. And then in more than half of the US states during the pandemic, it was essential. That's quite a flop, like criminal, you should be put in jail for it, not fine for it, you should be incarcerated for it. To, you're, this is essential during our crisis. The thing that I would pose is that we're at this moment where many people in the Department of Defense will hear this podcast and, and question me and question my motives. And think of me as somebody who's, um, you know, a lunatic who wants everybody to be on magic mushrooms or something like that. But I believe we're actually going to get to a place where it will be seen as criminal to have known that the tools were so effective and so useful and keeping the people at the Pentagon so in alignment with their core values and actually mitigating all the threats that they're concerned about and have been part of delivering uh, those traumas. Not that it's their fault everybody signs up together, but like they're together on the path for the traumas happening. Know that the most effective tools are available. Broad, reputable science is making that case. Will it be considered criminal to have denied the people in that building? And, and I use that building as a metaphor for the people all over the world um, that, that serve in the military. Will it be, criminal for them to have denied those, them, those things. And I believe that genuinely that might be the case um, to just do the quick rundown for people that don't know um, a schedule one medicine is something and you can create, you probably know it better than me, but as my understanding of it is it's something that has no known medical applicability and is highly addictive.
1: High risk of abuse. Yep.
0: Yeah. And you know, marijuana has been proven to, to have medical use, not be highly addictive. Uh, psychedelics, most of w- most of them fall into the same uh, very proven medical use. Uh, not highly addictive. Cigarettes, highly addictive. No, no medical use. Totally legal. Alcohol, highly addictive. No, no medical use. Caffeine, highly addictive. No, no medical use. McDonald's, highly addictive. No, no medical use. Social media, highly addictive. No, no medical use. All available. Uh, if I have a toothache, a doctor can give me opioids. And we know, and I just pause there for a moment to say, we know all of the carnage that's happened with that medicine. If if I have a stuffy nose, uh, I can go and get Sudafed, which is used to make methamphetamines because, because we were able to figure out how to get people the, the treatment for their stuffy noses. And, you know, I just propose that there's too much science to this and, and too much uh, behind it. And And we know, I think you and I know in the next two, three years, in some form or fashion, these medicines are going to be available. People might cringe to hear me say medicine, as I'm saying, psychedelic, psyche, you know, uh, why would you not use for your mind something (laughs) called psychedelic? Seems kind of obvious, just like you would use an opioid for your toothache. But, you know, they're worried that you're going to use a psychedelic and you're going to be disconnected from truth. Nothing has brought me closer to my truth and made me as unshakable from my values and what's important to me that they worry that you could be bribed, blackmailed or something like that. Nothing has brought me closer to you could come anything someone thought they could blackmail me for. These medicines have grounded me so deeply in my truth that there's no way you would get me to shake and be the liability that they're afraid that you'll be. And so that's, to me, what's really missed from the equation. But we do encourage people to go to the bar, which is a real liability for truth. That's, I'm not, I don't need to say to anybody that having alcohol <laughs> makes you not as likely to hold your ground and, and that we know all of the things, the damage that come with those things. And so uh, you know, what I'm worried is going to be missed in all of this help for veterans and help for the regular people is help uh, and really up-leveling, upgrading the way Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Elon Musk and, and Peter Diamantis and Tony Robbins have upgraded themselves, that we're not going to make that available to people that are leading the world in many ways. Thanks for, thanks for letting me rant. I know I get heated about it. It's really important to me.
1: I'm almost inclined to be like, "All right, cut. Like we're done." Couldn't said it better myself. That's great. <laughs> um, no, but it, you're 100 percent right. I, you know, I, I've been saying for a long time, it's going to like. There's going to be a point we look back and say like, it was more criminal to criminalize psychedelics and not make these available in constructive ways than any of the potential damage could've, that could have come from making them legal in the first place. And just. It's it's hard not to get to this conclusion, and for me, it's frustrating watching like this dialogue of all the sort of sober, serious psychiatrists and researchers out there who are trying to do their job, and I totally get that. But like, they feel like it's always necessary to pay, like paint a balanced picture of like, oh, there's risks, there's benefits, and like maybe it favors, you know, the maybe it favors the benefits. It's like, no, come on, like let's get off. Like the benefits are enormous. The risks are like there are risks. There's no doubt about that. But like, let's get off like this notion that we have to be balanced here. It's like the benefits are overwhelmingly mind bogglingly huge. And will there be some collateral damage? Absolutely. Can we have compassion for that? Absolutely. It doesn't mean that the benefits aren't still overly massive. I yeah. And
0: if you look at, if you compare risks, it's it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous to me. I would, if anybody wanted to do a risk by risk analysis with alcohol, I would laugh in your face and say, I don't mean to be arrogant. I'm trying to come from a place of humility, but this is such a ludicrous conversation to have those two things. And uh, you look at um, one of our mutual friends in uh, MMT, Derek, I don't think he minds me saying, You know, he does this bit about like, you know, there's a father at the family barbecue who, who rips his shirt off and punches a hole through a wall and people are like, yeah, you had a few too many drinks. And like if a guy was smoking a joint around the corner, they would, you know, in some some communities, you know, like he'd be the black sheep, like get out of here. Don't do drugs near the kids. And I think that this is in some ways like that, too. And and I remember after my experience at Field Trip Health, like the presence I had for my children with my children was so it just changed so much. I, I had such a lack of fear about un, unreasonable things that I could just so focus on the magic that is these moments that they have and like the things that they ponder and the silliness um, that they have. And and recognizing that, you know, from a research perspective, I did a decade of research on these medicines before endeavoring into any of them and realized how much of my brain wiring had been you know, wired the wrong way through years of bad thought patterns, anxiety, and I felt that specifically from ketamine. Um, you know, there was something to the experience, but there was a lot just to what physio, physio the physiological response is happening in my brain and my nerves that just made me go. <sighs> and I thought, why would we not let other people upgrade their brains this way? Um, and again, I, the Pentagon has tons of studies on these things specifically for PTSD authorized by George Bush, when we were losing more people to our own hand than the enemy. And it was those studies that really captivated my attention because they should be very biased. They make it very evident that, geez, you know, how could we lose 6,000 people a year to their own hand for 20 years and not use the tool that we've known for at least half of that time is 67% effective at ending their PTSD, meaning that they no longer qualify for PTSD, 67%. And another percentage of that's describing a meaningful upgrade in their quality of life with, almost, with completely negligible downside. And that just feels criminal and negligent. And somebody has to, at some point from, I think inside of this sphere of influence, yell and scream and kick, even if they're gonna be called names uh, in the meantime. And I just think for me, I'm at the point where, I, like I said, I'm going to be anchored in my truth and in some ways, just have the clout to open some minds to to say, "Listen, this is not some hippie who's been, you know rolling around in the fields chasing butterflies. This is a person who's been working alongside us and helping us for twenty years. And I do think um, I know you and another one of our colleagues had a discussion about the reason that this is the second revolution of psychedelics taking place is because it's not college kids dropping out or dodging the draft. It is highly successful business leaders, just people that fall into categories that other people have already put so high on a pedestal that it makes people take note. And I feel the responsibility of, I'm not sure I want to be on this pedestal, but if you're going to put me on it, I have some things to say.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. You get the, the burn-ins, but also also the benefits of of being put on that pedestal and and you know i think it's it's absolutely laudable for people to take advantage of that and use that for you know i think what are are, are very very constructive things. And and just to appeal to your efficiency focused mind for one second, in addition to those trials which show that close to seventy percent of people no longer have PTSD. And it would also save. Oh, right. I forgot it was Health... upgraded to 70. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it also save the US healthcare system about a hundred thousand dollars per person um who are treated with MDMA. So like, you know, it 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 it's just mind blowing. But listen, I think it's I think it's fantastic that you're using this platform and I think you know you should absolutely leverage your voice more and more because you know I'm a I'm a I'm a reformed lawyer. I, I present pretty well. Um, you know, I can stand up in front of a lot of important people and, and speak articulately to them, but you've been on the inside, you know, you've been right there arm in arm with them. And and so it carries a different level of cachet and, and relevance. And so I think it's absolutely important that you use your voice. And I appreciate you coming on here to use that voice for uh you know even our relatively small audience. It's it's still gonna continue. And, and, you know, I want to make an offer right now that if you want to continue to get out there and, and do this, I'm I'm happy to use whatever platform I have to help get your voice out there. So we can take that conversation offline. Um, but, um, but just wanted to put it out there. wanted to get into, um, one or two, a little bit more philosophical conversations. I think we're running out of time, so I'm going to keep it relatively short. Um, but you touched on Uh, and, and I'm just kind of like narrowing in on like the conversation around entrepreneurship and, and, and meaning and, and what's worthwhile. And, you know, one of the themes that I think about a lot, um, doesn't keep me up at night, but I like to noodle is like the importance of narratives and conversations and media. In fact, the last podcast we recorded, we went deep into like media and the narratives we tell ourselves and the impact that has on society and conspirituality, uh, which I don't know if you've heard that term before, but it's kind of like the default rejection of anything mainstream. And now we have Elon Musk buying Twitter Uh, and I I see you've kind of like uh, in your Twitter feed have, have, you know, retweeted or touched on that. I'm curious to know, you know, what are, what are your thoughts about that? And and there's one thing in particular, I think you reposted uh, something from, I'm going to say Jay, but I don't know if it's Jai uh, Malik, who said, history will show his largest impact is inspiring thousands of people to start companies, dream big and work together to solve huge problems. I certainly won't argue that inspiring people to dream big and work together is wonderful, but I got stuck uh, and and it's what we started the conversation on with the inclusion of starting companies, like in, somehow inherently starting companies is an economic good. It's like, I'm, I'm not sure that's the case. Actually, I think it may not be the case. It's like, again, going back to like self-reliance resilience, those are good, but starting companies, I don't know. I, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there, but like, first thoughts on uh, Elon Musk and Twitter and and you know anything else that came out of that that comment.
0: Hmm. Well, one, I love the question that you asked Elon Musk uh, at the conference just about his views on space. I just had to touch on that. I Thought it was a brilliant ask. I don't necessarily agree that starting companies is a great thing or a bad thing. Um, My retweet was just to say, I believe that's true, that this is what he will be known for. I don't think that, you know, I'm really big into space and the new space economy. And one of the concerns is that SpaceX is basically controlling governance. they're, They're writing all the rules of governance around space and it's not, you know, there's not equity and inclusion. I, I, I think it's worth it, but concerning. And I think tw- Twitter falls into a similar camp for me where I think, do I want Elon Musk controlling this much of mouthpiece and influence? Do I want any human controlling it? No, I don't. Do I think that he has some ideals that he will hold to, that he will implement? that will be upgraded from our current position? I do. I also think he's very malleable. And I think he's principle driven enough, knows his own faults, realizes he doesn't know everything. And so even in the space economy thing, it's kind of like people are challenging him and saying, but you're not doing this, this, this. And he goes, okay, cool. Let's talk about it. And you're doing it wrong. And he goes, yeah, that makes sense. I hear you like, sure. I'm the only one calling the rules and calling shots. I'm willing to set up I'm willing to hear things out and set up a governance board and like add other people to the table. And I, I just have, I have some faith in his ability to evolve it into the thing that it needs to be, because I don't think he's driven by all the wrong things. I definitely think narrative matters tremendously. Like this will be way out there for your audience, probably not for you, but I have it in my head that like time, money and geography are just requisite constructs of the story to make it all work for us. And somebody asked me like, geography? Like, and I said, geography is just a story of steps that have to be taken for us to be in each other's view. Like I have to go get in my car and drive down the street and go to the airport and get on a plane for this many hours and then get in an Uber and then we will be together. It's a story of those steps. And so that's way out there for a lot of people. <laughs> Money is a story of value. Exchange, this belief that I give you this and you give me that, and then we're we're value. Um, I believe PTSD is the studies have shown around PTSD the difference between people who experienced the same event and didn't have PTSD is how they cataloged that in their head was the story that they told themselves about it. And um I'm not a psychologist, but you know, it, it lands upon me how much the story we tell ourselves matters um and how we tell it to ourselves. And looking at the events that have happened in the world and the constant triggering status that we're in, it lands upon me that there's an incentivization for us to perceive everything as alarm, which makes hyper vigilance, hyper awareness. And and that's where we're at right now. And so I think Musk identifies that. And I think he will work to solve it and be imperfect. And there will be problems, and there will be challenges, and things he did wrong, and we will complain about them. And I'll be talking to you again in five years about all these things he did wrong. But I believe we might get we might get a substantial improvement.
1: I, I appreciate I appreciate a lot of the comments in there, um, particularly the viewpoints. And I think you're right. Is that like he's? Op- it sounds like he's open to being wrong. I can't actually put myself in his shoes, and I don't know him well enough. But I've seen enough on Twitter when someone like comments on it, and he'll be like, "Yeah, you're right. That's not right." And and the amazing thing is like he fixes it in days, not weeks or months or years, which is super cool to see. And I appreciate your comment about hyper vigilance and and maybe we'll pull it full circle there as we wind down this conversation. But like, if you don't matter, there's no reason to be hyper vigilant about everything, right? Like if you can let go of that and just be like, you know what? it's all okay. I think uh, I think anxiety and depression levels would go down quite a bit. And with that, I'm going to say thank you, Jerry. This has been a, an amazing conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been super insightful. Thank you for sharing your experience at Field Trip. I thought some of the downloads you got during that experiences were amazing. You know, when you talked about your therapist saying like, stop that. It's like, it got you here, right here, right now. And that's exactly where you need to be like that actually like hit me. Cause I'm like, I need to hear that probably more often than not myself.
0: Cause of the shame attached with, uh, you're just, you, you're gravitating to the shame of, of like not even fixing it fast. Yeah, no, Sorry, ex- like.
1: exactly. Or just like having gratitude being like all that stuff that like, I sometimes hate about myself or like feel like creates so much conflict in my life. It's like stopping and being like, yeah, but they got you here, and 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 so have gratitude instead of you know disgust for those things. It's like, oh, yeah, that, that's a very different perspective on on how to look at oneself. Um. So anyway, this conversation has been amazing, and uh, so thank you for joining, and thank you for outing, you know, uh, opening the conversation about mental health and and the viewpoints in, in the Pentagon and Department of Defense, and truthfully, all all military systems. You know starting the conversation is the first way to change it uh, along with all the research and all that kind of stuff so i'll let's say thank you and i'm just gonna add i'm gonna be in la next week um so if you're in town let's get together i uh, would love to grab dinner or lunch or something yeah i'd love to like many things in social media i may have been a bit late to the party on this one but i happened to catch a video caught on a ring doorbell camera of two kids who knocked on the door of a family home, offering to shovel snow for 20 bucks. The joy and enthusiasm in the kids' voices when the woman who answered the door said yes to their offer was infectious. One of the boys did a little dance before making detailed plans on how much money they can make and what to do with it, like buying a Lamborghini, adding that they'll need a paper bag for all their money because, quote, we're rich, we're finally rich. The video ends with one of them commenting, now let's do a really good job because they paid us first. Delightful, right? Hard not to love the earnestness in a world where entitlement seems to be quite prevalent. As I started to read through the comments on the video, however, I couldn't help but feel the need to pause. Virtually all of the comments commended the boys for being entrepreneurs, like being an entrepreneur is in and of itself an economic good. I also had to pause on the kids' emphasis on all the luxury goods they were going to buy with their newfound wealth. This video was one of the reasons that Jerry and I talked about entrepreneurship being an economic good in and of itself. Let me be clear, it isn't. It is certainly a proxy for all sorts of characteristics that I think we should encourage people to have. Innovation, self-reliance, strong ethics. But I think we need to start to change the narrative of how we think about entrepreneurship and, frankly, money. And self worth. I get that this seems like it could be hypocritical coming from an entrepreneur like myself, but I guess maybe that's the reason I feel compelled to opine on this. Being an entrepreneur is wonderful, I wouldn't have it any other way. But I was also raised in an era when, despite the old cliches of money not buying happiness, the message to me was unequivocal money makes life better, and more money makes life even better. Certainly, there's a degree of truth to that. Struggling to make ends meet is a stress unlike any other. But the belief that the more money you have, the better your life is going to be is a theme I think we genuinely need to challenge these days. Let me tell you why. I have struggled with it deeply. After the sale of our last business, I thought my problems were gonna come to an end. I had achieved the entrepreneurial dream. Start a business, sell it, life is gravy, right? But I can say with all sincerity that my life has become way more stressful and in some ways less fun since then. I sweat things that I never did before. My identity has become tied to my entrepreneurial success and that's a beast that needs to be fed. And I feel like I'm working harder than ever to do so. Contrast that with this perspective. Recently, I ordered a pizza from a local pizza joint in my neighborhood called One Night Only Pizza. When I got there, I was treated to what appeared to me like three friends having some drinks, listening to music, and making pizza. While certainly that job has stresses, I marveled at just how much that is what entrepreneurship should really be like. How such a big part of me would love to have a job doing just that, having fun, living life, making money, prioritized in that order. Could I do it? Maybe, but probably not because it would so challenge my programming and everything I have defined my identity around that the shift would almost be incomprehensible. What does this have to do with a conversation with Jerry? Well, this. One of the things I loved most about Jerry and our conversation is how, by coming on this podcast, Jerry is standing up and starting a conversation to start to change one of the fundamental belief structures in one of the most powerful organizations in the world. It's a huge leap and not an easy thing to do, but it's important and worthwhile." And I think that's really the conversation we have to have about all mental health. But frankly, the current system and belief structure we have put in place are not serving most people on many, many levels. And that includes our glorification of the lifestyle of the entrepreneurs and the wealthy. I'm not sure I could do it differently, but I can and do hope that for my kids and my kids' kids, they can have a better life, not defined by material wealth, but rather on finding fulfillment while making money on the side. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producers are Macy Baker, Alex Sherman, and Sharon Bella. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill, and of course, many thanks to Jerry Simpson for joining us today. To learn more about his work, visit kitewire.com.